Recovery Elevator, episode 437. I feel like a different person. I, like I've discovered a new human being in myself, which is like kind of amazing. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Mark. He's 45 years old from Connecticut and took his last drink on January 15th, 2023. Great job, Mark. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do an incredible job. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, it's already been a good day. And before we get any further in this episode, let's hear from Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the United States with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there's still a stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slips or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with tips for handling a relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery elevator. On that page, You'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next steps in their recovery journey. For my listeners in the Americas, more specifically the USA, I want to say happy 4th of July, which is tomorrow. Yes, merchants have pegged their products as a symbol of freedom. What's up, Budweiser? But true freedom is within. We all know that. In fact, it's never not been that way. In reality, people would rather go to the most remote corners of the world instead of going within. Shit, I'd also rather not face the shadow side either, but here we are. So happy Freedom Day listeners. Yes, our independence is on July 4th, representing freedom from England, the date 1776 comes to mind, but lasting liberation resides within. All right, let's get started. Today, I want to talk to you about conflict. Most people don't like conflict. In fact, my hand just went up, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. As human beings, we get stronger with each inner and outer conflict we face. Today, I want to cover conflict on the micro and macro level with y'all. Micro would be the inner conflict we experience. (laughs) Do I quit drinking or not? I'm never drinking again. And then we find ourselves drinking later in the day. And conflict on the macro level would be, we see this between groups and nations. So it is impossible to avoid conflict in a human life, and all attempts to avoid it will only result in more conflict or suffering. What's up, Young and Siddhartha? I've personally had conflicts with people, socks, printers, goats, trees, websites, online bill pay platforms, and more. Conflict is built into, by design, the human experience. After all, we are reconciling the yin to our yang on a daily basis. Some days, the dark side says, take a seat, and the next day, we welcome the light. Most of us tiptoe around this inner conflict for as long as we can. In fact, some humans live a lifetime without addressing it at all. They don't have to. For another group, this inner conflict gets so intense that if we are to resume anything that looks like a normal life, it must be addressed. Hello, addictions, and this is not a bad thing. Now, quick side note. 
Not everyone. In fact, most people who grapple with addictions choose not to address this inner conflict or to address the addiction. This is why I love you all listening right now. You all are willingly doing the harder thing. Yes, there are podcasts about true crime, vacations, how to remodel your house DIY style, yet you all are voluntarily listening to a podcast where the overall theme is find your authentic self, which is never easy. That's a big ask. So listeners, addictions take hold when there is intense inner conflict, when parts of our personalities are out of balance, or when parts of us are screaming for attention because we are in pain. In addition, this inner imbalance is a representation that the whole of society is out of balance. Your individual unrest or struggle with addiction is not separate from the whole of society. Oh, addiction, what a wonderful thing you are, and here is why. If we choose to depart from an addiction, we must heal these inner fractures at the micro, interpersonal level. Again, that's a big ask. So I'll be honest with you, inner work is hard. It sucks sometimes. It comes with tears, frustrations, blows to your ego and pride. Many times I wish this was not my path, but here I am. I never wanted to do any of this recovery work, but it was the addiction that forced me to turn my mental energies inward and say, okay, what the fuck is going on here? Now, I say I was forced like I didn't have any other choices, but in fact, that isn't true. I did have another choice. I rode my addiction long enough till I had just two options. That was life or death. And no, this is not metaphorical. So yes, I did have a choice. I didn't have to do any of this recovery work. I didn't have to fill out an entire notebook with people, places, things, and ideas that I feel have done me wrong, that have pissed me off, that have caused me to drink. I didn't have a gun to my head when I wrote down what was my part in every conflict or problem that I've been a part of. I wasn't forced to then read the notebook for two straight hours to another human being at a coffee shop. I didn't have to, nor do I didn't want to do any of that because I had options, right? And I did. One was life and the other one was death. And if you're listening now, you know I chose life. If I wanted to survive, as in keep doing laps around the sun, then that is what I had to do. And this is what many of us who are listening today have in common. So if we do choose life, what is the recovery work? It's checking the ego at the door and reconnecting with you. It's challenging the thinking mind, which is limited. It's a snapshot of the past. Everything that's happened prior to this moment compiled by the unconscious in a palatable format for the conscious. So again, this is finding your authentic self and wait for it. It's unconditionally loving all parts of yourself, the yin and the yang side. The result of this, and it won't be by tomorrow, is you'll begin to love everything in your external world because you're beginning to love everything in your internal world. Now, there's a phrase I've been hearing more and more from friends and colleagues across the globe, which is, what the hell is going on right now? And I've asked myself a similar question more than once before. All right, I'm not gonna be wishy-washy. Here is exactly what I feel is happening. It is simply too painful for people to turn inward, to notice their own blind spots, or the plank sticking out of their own eye, as Jesus would say, so they direct that unrest or lack of control outward. It is too painful for most people to address their own character defects, as Bill W. would say, so they direct their inner discord or inner lack of freedom outwards towards others. Now I can summarize racism in one line. People who do not love themselves will be unable to love thy neighbor. Another way to say that is, 
Humans who hate themselves will find themselves hating other groups of people. It's that simple. Now it gets dangerous, very dangerous, when a group, faction, or nation does not have the courage to address the unrest within their borders, and they force this onto other groups of people. What's up Russia-Ukraine conflict? Hello culture wars in America. So back to conflict, and how do we solve the what the hell is going on question? The answer is we do the inner work. We face this inner conflict on the individual and micro level. We learn from it. We recognize what the addiction is trying to force us to do. It makes one think for a second that the three most pressing problems that humanity faces today, which are existential in my opinion, are created by human beings, or more accurately, the human ego. These concerns are climate change, nuclear war, and AI. It's our collective egoic thinking at the macro that is about to kick us all in the goat blocks. And you, the listener, 100% have an effect on these issues by doing the inner work. If we are to believe Einstein, the Buddha, or quantum science, then it's the inner work more than anything else that will change the trajectory of humanity. So sign me up. Sign me up again tomorrow for this work. Thank you, addiction, and thank you, conflict. Listeners, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the intro. I had a good time putting it together. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Mark. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to do. I read a quote recently that I really liked. It said, whenever you can't decide which path to take, pick the one that produces change. It resonated with me. These words are very clear and simple, but honestly, for me, Sometimes doing the right thing is hard to do. How are we even supposed to know what the right thing is? When I find myself here, having a therapist has been crucial. I need a different perspective. I need someone to catch my blind spots and challenge me gently. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Mark to the podcast. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today. I started my day with some exercise and then did some good recovery work this morning. So I'm feeling really good today. Strong start to a Friday. Before we get into it, Mark, uh, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? So I've been sober, according to my tracker, uh, 145 days today, which puts me just just shy of five months. That's amazing. Five months, nice job. How are you feeling? I I feel like a different person. I, like I've discovered a new human being in myself, which is like kind of amazing. That's pretty exciting, right? Absolutely. Like this journey has been eye-opening for me in so many ways. And I've learned so much about myself along that journey that... Yeah. I, yeah, I'm just in a really good place today because of that. So I love that, man. And I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, before we, before we start with your story, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark? 
where you're from, what you do for a living age, if you're married, family, stuff like that. And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. So uh, I live in Connecticut and uh, grew up in New England area, uh, Massachusetts, but was actually born in Ohio, uh, but moved out here when I was really young. I'm 45 years old. I live with my husband. We've been together 13 years, married seven years. We have two dogs uh, and a cat. And for work, I work in marketing and customer experience and have worked across a a bunch of different industries. I'll get into that a little bit later, probably. And then uh, for fun, I love to ski. I love to hike. I love to get out in the garden, basically anything outside. Um, that gets me away from my desk is what I like to do for fun. Nice. As we, it's summer. So gardening season, when you, for gardening, do you like flowers and plants and stuff like that? Or you're, you veg, like vegetable garden? Uh, both. So flowers and plants, vegetable garden. I have some fruit trees. So yeah, uh, I like to dabble in a lot of things. I'm like, I would not consider myself a master gardener. But I like this concept of intuitive gardening. Um, and so I've sort of learned what works around my yard. <laughs> intuitive gardening. Uh, is that like a real thing or is that something you came up with? No, I, I heard or read about it somewhere. I don't know if it was like a, a Instagram thing or something like that. But I was like, intuitive garden gardening works for me. That like, it makes sense. <laughs> I, I like it, man. I'm into it. Very cool. Well, uh, Mark, let's do what we came here to do, man, uh, and talk about your relationship with alcohol. Maybe let's start with kind of your, your first exposure, the early years, and then we'll, we'll walk forward together. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. So alcohol has been a part of my life since honestly, since I can remember. And my first memory of alcohol, I have a vivid memory of sitting on the front steps of our house in Ohio, right before we moved to Massachusetts. So I must've been less than six years old. And, uh, I remember my dad gave me a sip of his beer after he had been working in the yard or doing some mowing the lawn or something like that. And I think it was like a Michelob and those like 19 early 1980s bottles. And I remember taking that sip and really liking it. And that like, I don't know why, but that memory really sticks in my head. And then, uh, as I, got older and, uh, you know, spending time with family, uh, my grandparents would come and visit us. Um, so they, on both my mom's side and my dad's side, they lived, you know, a good distance away, uh, you know, like a full day's drive or a multiple days drive. And I remember that my grandparents always carried this case. And in that case, they had all everything they needed in order to make, uh, old fashions. And I just, I don't know why, but that image of that case sticks in my head. And whenever my grandparents would come, uh, you know, it would we'd be playing Connect Four or things like that. They'd make their old fashions and they'd put the cherry in the old fashioned. And and if I was lucky, like I'd get a cherry. And I always wanted the cherry out of their drink, not out of the not out of the the bottle that the cherries were in, because uh, I liked that taste. Um, and I, that's the other thing that sticks at me from from my childhood. And I think that just alcohol has always been present in my life and as i got older it was it was basically you know just just a very normal thing in my family um all of our family events i wouldn't say they were centered around alcohol but it was always present it was always there 
so that was like really sort of like the early exposure. Um, as I got older and into high school, I, I, I think I had my first taste, like my first like drink, like I think it was like a Zima out in the woods somewhere. And <laughs> whenever, um, whenever somebody mentions Zima on this podcast, I always got to ask, was there a Jolly Rancher in it? There was not a Jolly Rancher in it, unfortunately. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Probably would have tasted better that way. <laughs> it couldn't taste worse. Uh, okay, sorry, Zima out in the woods. And and so Zima out in the woods, and like I, I like honestly like didn't drink a lot after that. But then my senior year of high school is when I actually really started to identify as being being gay. And I have a twin brother uh, who's also gay. And when we we started going out our senior year of high school, we started going out to a, a gay bar in in our community. And we didn't have fake IDs. We just got in, but it was a place where we could connect with people that I could identify with, right? It was a place where I felt comfortable being me and who I was, but there was also alcohol there. And so... Thursday, Friday, sometimes Sunday was at the bar drinking. And, you know, we were smart in that we took, we sort of rotated with a couple of friends, like who the designated driver was. But like, I think that's where my drinking career really took off, where I was drinking, you know, every weekend, drinking heavily. And then that just progressed through, through college, sort of, you know, finding that community and that connection with other people who I felt like were similar to me at the bars. And yeah, so that's where like drinking really took off for me. You know, you mentioned, you know, at these bars, being able to have a, like a sense of connection and feeling like you related with people that were there. Just curious at, at this stage in your life, you know, were you able to be open with people who were, who were close to you? Did, did you have any, connection or acceptance like outside of that or is this like an isolated space that you could find that yeah that's a good so i did i i came out my senior year fall of my senior year of high school so i was out to my parents uh obviously out to my my brothers and sisters and i was out to my friends at school too and i would say for the most part there was a lot of acceptance but there were people in my close circle who were not ex- who I interpreted as not being accepting. And I think it was more that as I reflect on it and as I've grown, while I felt rejection in the moment, I think it was caused by their love and concern for me and fear for what my life would be. Because I like back in the the late, late nineties, you know, people were starting to come out, but it wasn't as sort of socially acceptable as it is today. And so I think there was a lot of question around like what my life could be. Would I be, you know, would I get sick from AIDS, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there was a lot of fear and that created a sense of rejection because of the reaction to that fear from people who, who loved me. So let's uh, yeah, let's keep going forward, like into, into college. Yeah. So in college, uh, you know, basically the cycle continued. I, I was heavy drinking on the weekends, binge drinking, but I've always, and my parents instilled in me at a young age, like hard work and reward, right? So for me, it was like work really hard during the week and be responsible, 
get the stuff done that you need to get done. And then it was just like completely let loose on the weekends. And that's the cycle that's continued for me. But sort of that idea of like being responsible and being able to, you know, sort of create that facade of somebody who had everything under control. In college, I was a resident assistant. And and the reason I became a resident assistant was so that I could figure out all the ways to break the rules and not get in trouble, <laughs> right? Like it gave me the space to go and, and drink and and do it in a way where I wasn't getting in trouble. And so, yeah, but that's kind of been my MO throughout my drinking career is that I created this facade so people didn't know that I was drinking. Um, so as I graduated from college, you know, I thought my drinking was normal because I was surrounded by people who were, you know, had had similar behaviors. And I think in college, we, we drink a lot. When I got into the working world, you know, I wasn't drinking every day. I continued to mostly drink just on the weekends, maybe Thursday night. And early on in my career, I actually worked for big alcohol. And interesting, working for big alcohol, I thought it was going to be an environment where like people were getting drunk all the time, but there was always this requirement that we focus on on social responsibility, right? Because working in big alcohol, that was something they needed to be cognizant of. Yeah. And it's what was interesting is when I would travel for business or go to work events, like if you had more than two drinks, it was considered unusual. And, and so I found myself going on these work trips or going on these work events and like wanting to get away from the dinner or from the cocktail hour afterwards so I could go find a bar and and just drink more. Um, and and that's where I ended up hiding from people. After I worked in, in big alcohol, I, I started working for an industrial tool company. And there it was the complete opposite. Like <laughs> we'd go out and it was just like mayhem. Um, you know, we would get, you would be rewarded for who had the worst hangover in the morning, right? And and suffer through those meetings and <laughs> get that big breakfast sandwich to to make it through the day. So it was interesting to see that contrast. And I think that was working in that environment where it was very much celebrated, sort of accelerated my drinking. Was there any recognition at the at the time you mentioned? I mean, going back to like when you were when you were an RA, having like kind of capitalizing on that experience. Like, all right, I know. It, it's there's a little, maybe a little manipulation going on there, right? To like figure out how to drink, but then moving into uh, your position, you know, your position with big alcohol, you know, you you can see it now that changing behavior. Like, all right, I need to like I need to bounce because if I if I'm consuming what I want to consume in this environment, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to have eyes on me. So I, I like, I got to dip out and go somewhere else. Was there any recognition at that stage that, that, that you know, this is a, a wave that alcohol has control over me? Honestly, no. Like I, I, I think I was clueless. I think I thought I was a completely normal drinker. And like, I, I kind like, that was kind of my MO for 20 years. Um, and it wasn't really until I late thirties, early forties, where I started to realize, Oh, maybe I have a problem here. And, you know, after I worked in industrial tools for a while, I worked in, uh, healthcare, traveled a lot for work in healthcare. And again, it became one of those scenarios where I would hide from my colleagues 
But while all that was going on, on the weekends with my friends, with my husband, like alcohol was always present in our lives. It was what we did together. And so while I had to hide it while I was working or on business trips, in my day-to-day life, I didn't have to hide it ever. And, you know, I have other family members and in-laws who work in bars and breweries. And it's just so commonplace that it was once I got like into my 30s and late 30s and 40s and realized I was hiding it at work that, well, well, maybe I have a problem. But I think when I realized that I really had a problem was when... Like I would, I was drinking every day. I reached a point where I was drinking every day. I was having, you know, at least a bottle of wine. And then when we would go on vacation, because that was like my time for reward, I would just go on these crazy binges. And it was after one of those binges back in uh, 2018 that I realized that I really had a drinking problem. And I just, and that pattern kind of repeated itself several times. And so that was when I realized like, oh, there's really a problem here. And that binge drinking often led to to blacking out. And like, I don't know how I got back to the hotel room some nights, right? Like, it's like, I don't know what happened. And that's really scary. And um, I think that was, and the way you behave in those moments or in those times has consequences. And that started, those started, those consequences started to pile up um, in terms of my relationships, but really more in terms of for myself. And that I realized because, well, I don't know if I realized it, but I became more and more fearful as I had more of these experiences where I, you know, would black out. Yeah, I, I would just have more of these experiences. And so, I just became afraid in my life. I think that's a, I think that's a great word is that is fearful. I think a lot of us have been there and, and if it's okay, I just, I, I want to dig into that just for a minute. Like, like, what is that fear? Cause I, th- I think sometimes we say it, but like what, you know, if we unpack that, what, what were you afraid of? So I think that fear came from not being comfortable in myself and, yeah. and, it wasn't until I started this journey of sobriety and was able to start some date, start to stack some days together where I've really been able to understand what that fear was. And I think that fear came from um, really a self-loathing. And I think, you know, if I go back and look on or, or look at sort of try to evaluate, well, how did I get to drinking so much? How did I get to drinking so heavily? And there's a lot of areas in my life where I can point to conflict and wanting to run away from that conflict turned me into somebody who wanted to make sure that everybody else was happy, wanted to make sure that I always lived up to and met others' expectations. And I think the fear came from that as I started drinking more, it became harder and harder for me to live up to those expectations. And it created, as it became harder and harder, it just created this sense of dread within me. And so waking up in the morning at 3 a.m., like just berating myself for 
having another drink, for not trying to control it, or for not being able to control it, thinking about like what I had in front of me and what I had to tackle that day and just how difficult that would be because I didn't have the energy or was, you know, had the headache and was hungover. That fear just started to compound over over time. It's that people pleaser part of me, I think is what fueled that fear because I lost who I was myself. I didn't know who I was. Yeah. I'd be willing to bet that we've got people listening to the show right now who are maybe in that state of fear or they're experiencing it. They've got, you know, that, that anxiety, that's something that I used to have all the time. And, and I think you said it very well that just that word fear, I think of the, the end days of my drinking, it w- was so much of that fear. And there was a lot of that people pleasing. And, and for me, that was people pleasing. Sometimes I think gets this rep, like we're this, these martyrs on a cross, like, Oh, I just, I want you to be so happy. And I, I just care about you. Honestly, like for me, I didn't, I didn't give a shit if you were happy. Like I wanted you to be pleased with me and, and I would go to whatever ends, you know, I would put on whatever mask I had to, or I would, you know, it was, you know, back to like manipulation just to put on this show so that I could get that little dopamine hit from like, are you happy with me? Like, and it's, take me back to my childhood it's another way of someone saying hey you're a good boy like i was just so hungry for that and the further along i went like it just i I needed to do that more and more and i could like i couldn't stand it i couldn't it it was painful and so alcohol became a soother and helped me ease that and then alcohol you know does its thing and jacks up my life and then i start to feel you know exactly what you said i start to get upset with myself because shit, I had one too many or 20 too many most of the time. (laughs) But, and, and then like on top of wanting you to be pleased with me simultaneously, I hate myself because I keep screwing shit up and it's just such a, just a, a gross, painful cycle. And yeah, when you said fear, it just, I don't know, it hits something in me and I'm like, yes, like that is, it's, that is a really, really hard spot to be and it can feel very we can feel very helpless in that and i and i just know just based on the demographic of of what we know of our audience that i know that there's people who are there right now like shit yes what do i what do i do with this what i'm here today what the hell do i do yeah i think you said it so well um it's it reminds when you said martyr um when I was a little kid, my mom always told me, Mark, don't be the martyr. <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. But I think it's just like, I reflect on that. And it's like, from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to please others. Not because to your point, I didn't want to make them happy. I wanted them to, you know, approve of me. And I think a lot of that comes from also growing up, knowing I was gay and hearing so much negativity around that. and that that I was less than, I was less of a person because of that. And as I reflect on it, as I worked through, you know, the beginning of my sobriety journey, I've come to learn that, that, that feeling less than that feeling of people might not accept me is, is a real strong root of that fear. And I think it's also what drives me to want to please others. 
But in that process of pleasing others and trying to live to their expectations, I lost complete sight of myself. And what did I want? What was important to me? What are my values? And I, I didn't, I don't, I didn't know. I'm starting to figure it out. I still don't know completely. I think that's the journey I'm on now. But I think that then because I didn't know those things, because I was afraid of if I did anything wrong, people wouldn't accept me. I just beat myself up constantly. And I had that voice in the back of my head that was constantly attacking me, constantly telling me I was worthless. You know, you're worthless, a whole bunch of swears, um, you know, I'd say things to myself that if I ever said them out loud to other people, they would be shocked. And that alcohol magnified that and amplified it and made it louder and louder and louder. And I finally just got to a point where I couldn't deal with it anymore and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I said, I realized earlier back in 2018, I had that like really bad moment when I'm like, oh, alcohol is not helping me here. I have been on a path since then of, you know, trying to control my alcohol and, but I was always doing it alone. And so it's taken me almost five years to get to a point where I've been able to stack together the 145 days that I have today. But I had to reach such a low point in terms of like that fear within myself, visibly to everybody else around me. I was doing great because I kept up that expectation because I kept up that desire for recognition or acceptance from others. Like I felt like I had to keep doing those things and I just couldn't do it anymore. I reached that point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Let's talk about some of those, you know, yet five years of, of awareness. That's, I think like a lot of us, I, you know, I, I don't know when that showed up for me, but there's, there's a lot of us who, who see it and it, it takes a little while, <laughs> you know, it takes us some time before, you know, before we can get some, some big traction. But I think all that little traction, it's, we're building, right. We're, we're learning stuff and there's, there's some painful lessons in there, but let's talk about like what some of those methods look like from from 2018 to this past January, what some of those things look like as far as trying to control or quit and, and how that played out. And then I want to hear what, what happened in January. That's got you these beautiful 145 yeah. days that, that you're, that you're sitting with today. Yeah. So the, the first thing I did was I tried like a dry January challenge in, in early 2019. And that was my first exposure to sobriety. And I think at that point in time, I had probably listened to my first uh, recovery elevator podcast, listened to that a couple times. Um, I stumbled across this guy, James Swannick, um, and sort of listened to some of his program and read sort of like a little book he put together. So that was like my first attempt. And then like the following year, I think it was like dry January and I'm going to read Annie Grace's book, uh, This Naked Mind. And and so I started to like educate myself about alcohol. And so I'd stack together 20 days, 30 days, 10 days. And, you know, then I slowly started thinking about, well, 
let's maybe try not drinking in October. But I always got derailed by something. We were going on vacation. There was a trip. There was a holiday. Uh, friends or family were coming. And I never was able to really stack days together. But then, honestly, in 2022, in the fall of 2022, I like the cycle had just been continuing. And I had honestly reached a point where like, I didn't even like drinking. I didn't even like, I needed to drink, but I didn't like doing it. I didn't like the taste of it anymore. Like the wine that I thought was delicious was like, I didn't even like the taste of it anymore, but I still kept drinking. And I was like, something's got to change here. And I finally, uh, November of last year was like, or no, maybe it was October. It's like, I'm going to get a therapist. And so I found a therapist and started talking to a therapist and He's been instrumental in really helping me recognize that, well, I had been doing all this work before, reading a lot of books, educating myself on what alcohol was doing to me and to my body and to my mind. What he helped me realize was like, I was doing it alone. Mm -hmm. I I hadn't reached out to anybody for help. And so he really pushed me to, you know, think about attending AA meetings. And so in January of 2023, you know, I, you know, made a bunch of excuses through the holidays and new years, not to, to keep drinking. And then January, that weekend of January 15th, we had some friends visiting and, um, I had my last drink on that day. And probably a week later, I, had been convinced by my therapist that it would be a good idea to try to find community. So I started trying a variety of different um, AA meetings. Um, So I went to a few in my community and they just didn't stick for me. They didn't work. Did some online meetings for AA and I I just wasn't connecting with the people and the folks. And then during that process, I was already, I was listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast every morning and hearing about the community. I was like, well, maybe I should join the community. So I joined, you know, I think it was 10 days after I had my last drink on January 15th, I joined Cafe RE. And in the podcasts, I had heard, I can't remember if it was you or if it was Paul, but there was one that really stuck with me about getting uncomfortable um, and that you had to put yourself, you know, outside of your comfort zone in order to, you know, find that connection. And so I joined the morning chats on Cafe RE. And that has, I think, been one of the most crucial tools in my sobriety in enabling me to maintain sobriety because I've started to actually meet people who understand me, who get that fear. Like the way you described that fear completely resonated with me. It's like you said it way better than I did, but completely articulated how I felt. And I found myself in a community with people who who understand that. And that's what's kept me sober. That's what's enabled me to stack the 145 days together. Well, huge kudos to you, Mark, for for taking those steps to to get yourself uncomfortable. And it it's hard. Like I don't care if it's your first online cafe re chat your first aa meeting whether it's virtual or in person it's that shit feels really really hard you know i remember dude i remember going to my first aa meeting well they made us go in in treatment and i threw a fit and i was like i was kind of a teacher's pet when i went through rehab 
But when the counselor's like, yeah, hey, on Tuesday, we're going to this AA meeting. I was like, I'm paying whatever it was a, a day to come here. And you're taking me to a meeting that's free. Like, this is bull. We shouldn't do that. We should stay here. And it was because I was scared to go. And like, I don't know, like I'm in rehab. Why am I scared to go to an <laughs> AA meeting? But it's it can be nerve wracking. But what, a like I said, like big ups to you, man. That's Those are big steps to to sign up for a community and, and, you know, obviously we, I'm a huge proponent of cafe RE, but like, it, it doesn't, ha- you know, we say this often, it doesn't have to be that it's, it's just finding that whatever that thing is for you. It, it doesn't have to be our thing, but those are, those are big steps and, and it can be challenging, but, but you did them. Like, what was the difference between, you know, these years of trying it alone and then when you found that community that that did work for you that that you did click with like what was what was that shift like internally i think that shift internally was really it was being willing to recognize that i couldn't do it alone right and i've always sort of prided myself on like i can do anything myself right like no matter what it is and and this was one thing i couldn't do myself and i finally was willing to accept that and and in that acceptance, I was able to, you know, push all that fear that I had aside. Like I was, I was so afraid of everything. I was like, well, whatever, F it. I'm just going to do this. Right. And it was, it was hard, but I just got to a point where I knew that I just, if I didn't do something the outcome would be worse. And so I think it was that shift of realizing like, I can't do it alone. And if I don't do something, this is just going to get worse. And, and I didn't want it to get worse. So that yeah. was the the real shift in the feeling. And then I think the other, like I have to give props to my therapist as well, right? Like he was super helpful in this journey and getting me to a place where I, he, I think he built my confidence up enough that I could go do those, try those AA meetings in person, try the AA meetings online, join Cafe RE. Like, I don't think without him, I would have gotten to a point where I could have done that alone. So that was like, that's a huge piece um, too, in terms of getting to where I am today. I'm really glad that you had that support, man. I'm really, really glad that you did. We've got a little bit of time left before we dig into rapid fire. Let's let's talk for a few minutes about the last 145. And and I like to to focus on, you know, it's it's hard. Like we all know it's we all know it's freaking hard, right? What are what are some of the rewards that you've seen in the last in the last five months, Mark? What are what are some things maybe that that you expected or some things that you didn't expect that have changed in your life? Yeah, so much has changed. I think what what I didn't expect was some of the ups and downs, right? Like the past five months has not been all butterflies and rainbows and unicorns. There's been a lot of ups and downs in that, but there's been more good in those last five months than I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I think that's what was unexpected for me in that I've had so many unexpected moments where I feel alive again. And 
I think a couple of critical things that in that process, one was for me at the end of my drinking, like my negative talk, self-talk was so bad. The, how much that has been silenced is amazing. And in silencing some of that voice and learning how to sort of look at it objectively, I've also learned to like actually love myself. And I think that's one of the biggest things for me that is just like mind blowing is like, it's okay to love myself. And that like that change in my perception of myself is biggest gift I've, I, I could ever get in this. And so wanting to be able to, to maintain that is so important to me and being able to love myself it also has given me the space because I don't have that voice constantly beating me up to be more present in each moment as well, too. And being present in the moment, you know, has enabled me to enjoy things that I never thought I would enjoy. So like going for a run in the rain is freaking awesome. I love it. I love going for a jog in the rain. Like, and the first time it happened, I was like, oh man. And then I was like, wait, just enjoy it. And that was like one of my best sober moments going for a run in the rain and just being able to really appreciate it, um, which I never would have been able to do before. And so I think that's part of the unexpected piece over the last five months is that I found these moments that I never expected would have brought me joy. Um, but they do. That's beautiful, man. I think there's a, I think there's a direct correlation to that, negative self-talk diminishing and like and for me it it hasn't gone away like 100 percent still exists there's still some jerk talking crap in the back of my head but when i introduce that self-love and those positive affirmations and i and i'm i'm telling myself that i'm enough and and i've got a community of people around me telling me that they love me and that i'm enough and and i'm, I'm not perfect and i'm still growing but i'm i'm enough that's it it kind of shuts that voice down you know it's it's still there but but i don't have to buy in to what they're selling because i got another option and that's that that's that i'm loved and i'm cared for and i'm perfect the way that i am and it's okay if i fail and it's okay if i grow and it it's okay to just be yeah i think that's beautiful and and like you are enough mark and i'm enough and listeners you're enough and you are loved and you are worth it. And that's huge, man. That self-love. Yeah. I love it. I'm really glad. Yeah. That I, I mean, it really like learning to love yourself is the biggest gift you can give yourself. And I think sobriety is what has enabled me to do that. Um, I never would have gotten there without, you know, ditching the booze. Amen to that. My dude, this time has gone by very quickly. We are at the rapid fire round. Mark, 30 to 60 seconds. I'm going to ask you to answer these questions. Are you ready? Let's do this. All right. Number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? I, it's cliche, but being boring. I, I didn't know what I would do because my entire life revolved around drinking. Yep. <laughs> I feel you. <ya. laughs> Uh, number two, what is a positive that you did not expect in a life without alcohol? Learning to love myself. 
I did not see that coming and it was huge. Three, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Seltzers, LaCroix, I got mine here. But ding, ding, I ding, recently, ding, ding. <laughs> I did recently just discover hop water and like, I know that's a brand, but then there's like other like seltzer with hops and it's, it's pretty good. It's that my new is, thing. That stuff is tasty. I like, uh, I just got a case of Lagunitas Hoppy Refresher at uh, Costco the other week. There's like hop teas. I think hop teas, the brand that stuff is, I like that. Uh, I approve, not that you were looking for. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Number four, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Uh, you know, to continue making connections. And um, I know that in order to continue this journey, I have to make sobriety a priority every day. And I have to make uh, connecting with other people uh, in recovery a priority as well. Um, so finding ways to continue to do that. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are early in recovery or thinking about getting sober? I think, you know, just don't give up. I tried for five years um, before I was able to actually stack days together and be willing to try everything. Um, and I think that's, that's key. Be willing to try everything and it's going to be freaking scary, but it's worth it. Beautifully said. And last, but certainly not least, Mark, can you give listeners your favorite? You might need to ditch the booze if line. Uh, you might need to ditch the booze if the, the package store owner um, says, hey, Mark, I haven't seen you in a while. Are you okay? You got the clerk taking attendance and Mark hasn't been around. What's happening here? Yeah, might want to ditch the booze. Brother, I just want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your vulnerability. Thanks for coming on. Beautiful story, dude. And I'm excited. Uh, we're just getting just get just we're just getting started. Uh, I'm excited to see where things go from here. Yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And I'm I'm excited about the journey ahead. So thank you very much for letting me share. Happy to do it. Love you, dude. Love you too. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. So it's July 3rd and summer is in full swing. I think I've mentioned it on here before, but every once in a while, my friends and I do a pulse check. It's a quick way to share where we're at and ask others the same. Life gets crazy, but we need to stop every once in a while to see where we are. So Recovery Elevator, that's what I want to do today, a pulse check. Summer seems like it screams by, so we're going to take a minute to see how it's going compared to how we thought it would be going. First, did you have a sobriety goal? Without judgment, ask yourself how it's going. If you've met it, what can you do to keep it strong? If you've had challenges, are there things that you can modify, add, or take away to give it another shot? Have you been spending your time the way that you wanted? Self-care, fitness, nutrition, family time, maybe even professionally. Are you giving these areas of your life the time that you want to? Again, without judgment, what can you do to stay in line with your goals? I'm in the camp of trying to make small, subtle changes versus drastic sweeping one, but that's an individual decision. For me, it's been a good summer, but very fast. 
We spent the end of May and most of June between work and then doing some projects around our backyard. It's felt good to have tangible results to look at, and we've even had a chance to get the whole family in on the projects. One area, though, that I feel like I never get enough of is that quality family time. Looking at the coming weeks, I want to make sure that I'm creating time to spend with the family. It doesn't have to be a huge event that we do together, but even these little moments count for something. That will be my focus. Trying to get out on the boat, even if it's just for a quick ride. Trying to start more fires in the stone fire pit that we dug. Cooking meals together or going for walks. I just want to make sure that I don't let the summer slip by without getting in as much of that as possible. Well, Ari, we took the elevator down, but we've got to take the stairs back up. I love you guys.